Heavenly Father, would you teach us this morning everything that you would have us know about what it means to, to, to follow a God who is jealous for us and who calls us to fidelity, who calls us to trust. Help us to trace the law back to the lawgiver. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So the Ten Commandments don't ease you into the story. They don't start with like the easier commandments, you know, like you're breaking, you know, you're breaking wood or bricks or whatever else. You start with like the small little basil wood thing, you know, don't kill people. You're like, all right, I can do that. Instead, it starts with the biggest, the baddest of them all, and it says, have no other gods. It's like a, a book that you read that starts out, you know, and, it, and, it's, and, and it's like it starts out and it says, by the way, you know, the narrator tells you from page one, they're an alien. And you're just like amazed by this. What? Or it's even worse. It's like a book that starts out and says, by the way, you're an alien. And then you'd be even more shocked by this. This is the way the Ten Commandments start. Right from the beginning, you have to have this crazy kind of relationship with God where he is the only God. There's no preparation for it. The first thing you hear is, I am the one who took you out of Egypt. It's, by the way, un unbelievably beautiful that God puts the, his commands, his law, as, as kind of the, the truth inside this beautiful husk that is God's deliverance and his rescue of his people. If anybody ever tries to give you the law without the grace that's also present with the law, they've missed the boat, okay? You need to recognize, even here, which we see is like, this is the law. Even where the law is given, God's grace even precedes it. I'm the one who delivered you. This is our relationship. Therefore, here's the law, right? This is how the law is kind of framed. Now, if you're a fan of ancient Near Eastern legal code literature, um, and I know many of you are, right? This is the high point. You can go big or go home. Some prefer the law of Hammurabi, but this to me is the tops right here, Ten Commandments. If we are honest, though, we find that from the beginning, the first commandment it sets this tone that's difficult for us. It's very preachy, very preachy, okay? Lots of religious language here. It's, almost, it's like, you know, it's like break out the organ and, you know, give a love offering kind of preachy. I mean, this is old time religion stuff. The Lord your God is to be your only God. He's the only one. And I think because it strikes us that way, the first challenge of understanding a text like this is that many of us hear this commandment and we kind of nod with our fingers crossed. Who can follow this? Really? The Lord as your only God? And you might be thinking, you know, if, if in your mind you're thinking, well, I, I'm not a pagan worshiper. I don't have like 12 gods that I serve. I don't have idols set up on my fireplace, you know? I don't do that. Well, Sure, that's true, but that's not exactly what's going on here. It's not just about these big, bold kinds of idols, these other gods. It's also about, you know, the gods that we more commonly see in our world, right? It's about the gods that are more, even more comfortable, helpful, good for us. I mean, as a matter of fact, when you look at something like this, you have to think, really no other gods? Have you met the other gods? You know, the god of being successful in your career and being well thought of? being physically attractive, being content. How about being happy? That's a good God, man. You, we like that God. How about if that God's first? And yet here, from the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, it says, no, the first commandment is that God must be first. 
Now, here's what it tells us, okay? Just to kind of dive into what exactly is meant here. The first commandment tells us that our God is different. He's not like anyone or anything. He is other. Now, the Bible has a word for this. When it says, you are other, it uses this word holy, right? And I know you've heard that before, holy roller, holy, holy spirit, holy God, all of you, holy, but you might have thought that holiness just means like, I ascribe to you religious properties, okay? But that's not exactly what's going on. Holy means different. It's when you can't wrap your words around it. When I had children, I thought, there's gotta be a word bigger and better than love. I don't know what to say, but I love this kid, but I just keep saying it, right? And in the same way with God, we don't have words to capture his otherness, so we call him holy. It's like the divine wow. You are holy. You are different. He is other. Our God, the scriptures compare him regularly to a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire. In his otherness, he is powerful. Just trying to give you a little bit of a survey here as we think about what this exactly means. Maybe that's the biggest thing that a pastor can say on a Sunday morning in a world where we, we believe that our, our worlds are kind of fireproof. You know, we, we try not to get too excited, too down, you know, too high, too low about things. We, we kind of have firewalls in our lives. The pastor this morning tells you that there is no firewall strong enough, graded highly enough, to keep you from the majesty and otherness of God when you dig into who he is in the scriptures for us. This is the reason that it starts off this way. This is the, the very beginning. You can't contain God in a book or a lifestyle. He can't be adequately contained in a Bible study or a conference or work in a soup kitchen or, or praying the rosary. This God in the scriptures is a consuming fire. He's bigger. Big challenge for us. He's not containable. You can't approach him the way you approach everything else. Okay, trying to just give us a, a sense of our challenge here as we look at this text. The challenge of taking this, the scripture seriously is that we can come to God all kinds of ways. You can come to God empty hands, dirty hands, you know, worn out hands. You can be a, a, a happy person, sad. You can be full of doubts or full of boldness or confidence. You can come to God with all kinds of questions. You can come with charts and maps, but you can't come to God casually. You can't come to God casually. I don't mean personally, right? I mean you can't come to God with indifference. Like he's just anyone or anything else. The scriptures give us no room with that. Thou shalt have no other God. This is the statement of holiness, otherness of God. He gives this to God's own people because they're not supposed to be just bled by God or near God, they're supposed to be God's own people. They were moving into a community, into a world. They were the Exodus community. They were sent out from Egypt. They were delivered. And now they were on their way to the promised land. And the land that they were going to inhabit and the desert that they would wander would cause them to want other gods. They were going to have myriads of gods, all kinds of gods to choose from, just like we do. And so the God of the scripture says, listen, the very first thing I can tell you is this. You must have no other gods. This first commandment tells us that our God is holy. He's uniquely powerful. And he's uniquely sufficient for us. 
We're not used to holiness. Holiness is not something we experience on a daily basis, at least in the way the Bible means holiness. At least it seems that way. You know, there's no surprises in our world. We do our best to figure out how everything works, okay? Nobody believes when the magician says, there's nothing up my sleeve. Of course, there's something up your sleeve, right? Nobody is shocked by this. And so when someone says, this is the God of the universe and he's created everything and he said, I am wholly different, we're trained to say, where are the strings? Really? Is this who he is? God is a consuming fire, really? You know, have you ever been in one of those, uh, one of those restaurants where they've got the fake fireplace? You know what I'm saying? They've got like the little, it's like, it's like this thin, you know, it's like a little pane of glass and it's got like the roaring fire. And some of them have like the sound of the roaring fire. But guess what is missing? The, the heat of the fire, the danger of the fire is not there. It's atmosphere. And if we're honest, okay, we just, we have to be willing to be honest to say that the big challenge for the Christian as they come into worship is that God, in some ways, we treat like atmosphere. He's a decoration. He's around us, but his power, the kind of fearsomeness of his strength is missing. What does the thou shalt have no other gods mean? Well, I'm just gonna give you two brief ways that I think we see this. One is, thou shalt have no competency before me, right? Thou shalt not be in control of thy life. I do not like this commandment. I am a control freak by nature. And look, here's the secret. Every human being is. We like to say, well, this so-and-so, they're a control freak. Do you know when someone else's control freaked nature drives us crazy? Is when we are out of control now because of their control freakedness, right? In the same way as we relate to God, it is very uncomfortable that he is so holy and powerful and awesome. Thou shalt have no competency before me. T.S. Eliot describes kind of the God of the sea, and he says this. He says, it tosses up our losses, the torn seine, the shattered lobster pot, the broken oar, the gear of foreign dead men. It tosses up our losses. We look at the sea, and we're reminded that it's more powerful than us. We look at God, and we recognize he's more powerful than us if we see him correctly. So we might fear that. Christianity can't be constructed without a wake-up call like that, okay? To keep God's law is to become familiar with your limitations. That's one of the challenges. Or we fear God's holiness because no one else is holy in our world. No one's holy. And if there's a God who's set apart in his ethics and his morality, then the things that I do and think matter. If there's a God who is all-powerful and he says, this is how you are to live, then suddenly my ability to control my level of morality and how much I really want to live this Christian life, it's taken away from me. I follow him. I live the way he calls me to live. I don't like that. So we wrestle with the first commandment because God is in first place and I am not, right? I should want to esteem myself. I should have self-esteem, sure, because I have human dignity and I'm made in the image of God, but I have to esteem God more than myself. Big challenge. Big struggle. The first commandment starts by saying, you're not in control. You know, good morning. You're not in control. So thou shalt have no competency before me, but thou shalt also have no incompetency before me. Now suddenly it's not just our competency that has to be given over to God, but also our incompetency, our feeling that we cannot possibly have anything to do with God because we are messed up. 
Isaiah chapter six, verses one through seven, one of the core verses or passages in the Old Testament that teach us about God's essential nature. And it makes perfect sense when you look at the first commandment and you see what's happening here in Isaiah six, okay? All right, stick with me here. Here's what's going on. The prophet Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, right? Above him stood the seraphim, They guard the presence of God, the holy presence of God. Each has six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew, right? Instantly, we're already seeing this God is so holy that even you, you can't lay your hands or your feet or your face upon him. This is how powerful he is. The whole earth, and and to one another they cried out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That divine wow, this is all I can say. Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of, one who, of, of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Notice the challenge he's seeing. This God is holy, and I am not. I might as well be dead. I can do nothing. I am at this God's mercy. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is how God uses his holiness. One reason why I can delight in the law is because I see a God who in his holiness says, I come to make you clean. I don't cast you away. In an instant, I can burn away what corrupts you. In an instant, I can make you mine. I can make you fit. I can make you whole. Man, that's a crazy use of power. I'm not familiar with that kind of power. I'm used to political power, the way that we use power in this world, which is ultimately self-serving. Instead, this God says, You who are corrupted, I make you clean. Those of you who are broken, I make you whole. The holiness of God is why I get to say that no one is beyond God's grace. I love that part of my job, okay? You come to me and you say, I am so unbelievably broken and and unable and God would never want me and I've got like 12 things on my checklist to get right before I can come to church and I can tell you, you're wrong. No one is beyond the grace of God to transform. This is how he uses his holiness. He uses his holiness to heal. So when I look at the first commandment and it says, this is the only God. When I look at the first commandment and I say, this has to be protected, we have to look and say, he is God and I am not. It's because healing is what I need and he's the only one that can do it. What this does is it creates like Christians who are crazy, like tenacious and optimistic about the future of God. You can tell them that the world is, you know, going to wherever in a handbasket and they'll say, yeah, but, but this is the end of the story. This is what God is doing. And the church stands as that annoyingly optimistic person who regularly says things like, grace be to you. The love of God be to you. The holiness of God is for you. He cares for the poor. 
the poor like me and you and the poor not like us. He cares for the sick and the blind. He raises the dead because he's holy. I cannot do it, but he can do it. So I can delight in that. So maybe, you know, you wonder, you struggle to believe that God could be for you. Maybe it's because you're in an unhappy career or you deal with a neglectful child or a a friend who deserts you and those things break you that make you feel unholy. But God in his tremendous grace, in a moment in a flash, he can call us clean because he is holy. So why does God care? You know, why does God care if I worship other gods? Why is this such a big deal to him? You got to trace the law back to the lawgiver, okay? I'll ask the question I asked at the beginning. Who needs a God who so needs us to need him? Who wants that kind of God? So uh, maybe you've never watched an episode of I Love Lucy. Uh, By the way, my cultural uh, touch points in this congregation are rapidly leaving your everyday life, okay? I recognize that. I am getting older, and by and large, you all seem to be getting younger. But Uh, If you've never watched, you might have never watched an episode of I Love Lucy, a great 50s comedy, Lucille Ball, brilliant comedian. There's this iconic episode where Lucy and uh, her friend Ethel, they're trying to show their husbands that working a nine-to-five job is easier than being a housewife, okay? So they get a job in a candy factory. Stick with me. I know you weren't really hoping to hear about I Love Lucy this morning. Just follow me. It doesn't go well, okay? Their last chance to keep their jobs is they have to perform well at the candy wrapping station. Let me just stop for a second and see if I'm the only one who remembers this or has ever seen this. This is an iconic episode. Anybody else bold enough to raise their hand and tell me that they know what I'm talking about? Oh, this is awesome. Fantastic. Okay. All right, great. So we're all in the same thing, right? So uh, this is their last chance to keep their jobs. They have to perform well at this candy wrapping station, and it's a line with a conveyor belt, all right? And it delivers chocolates at a very slow pace, a pace slow enough for them to take it and wrap it and put it back on the belt, okay? And the, the, the supervisor tells them she's real harsh, and she's like, look, If one of these candies get through the conveyor belt and into the next room without being wrapped, you're fired. Okay. Conveyor belt starts very slowly. Each one of them, they're grabbing one. Lucy's grabbing one. Ethel's grabbing one. Nice and easy. And then Lucille Ball, you know, she's prone to do, she's so good at this physical comedy. She starts acting kind of, she's just jauntily kind of wrapping them because this is so easy. They both feel really good at this, at this point, right? And then then you just notice, and one of the most beautiful parts of this is you can hear the crowd Uh, the audience, as they're noticing the conveyor belt is kind of speeding up a little bit. And it starts speeding up just a little bit, and it starts to malfunction. And as it's moving faster, you see Lucy and Ethel, they start to get worried, right? And they're watching, and they're seeing the chocolates kind of getting past them. And so, you know, they start snagging them and kind of like pulling them off the conveyor belt, and Ethel's shoving them in her mouth because that's a good way to solve the problem, right? And Lucille Ball's taking, Lucy's taking them and shoving them in her blouse like they're just doing whatever they can to get rid of this chocolate. And they're passing, and they're getting closer and closer to exiting the room unwrapped, and the crowd's going crazy. Both of them shoving chocolate into their mouths and hats and, and whatever else. They can't keep up. The desperation of trying to hide the chocolates. Willingness to do anything to keep from getting found out. That's where the comedy lies, right? Of course they fail. They fail hilariously. But maybe you've never watched an episode, but you've lived that episode. When we encounter the first commandment, it's given to a world of Lucy and Ethel's. Only one God will you serve. Be sure to wrap the chocolates. John Calvin said that the human heart is a factory of little gods. And more than we can handle, they're more than we can handle. 
They spring from our heart in ways that, you know, feel, okay, you know, I can serve this God. I can serve this God. I can please this person. I can make this great. I can achieve this career goal. I can have kids that are well-dressed and well-mannered. I can do this. But eventually, these things start moving faster. Those little gods become more than we can handle. When we live for approval at work, the seven bosses you serve. When we're done at work and we hit the gym and we have to look at ourselves in the mirror, we deal with the idolatry of body image. We see it. We walk out of the locker room. We see someone whose physical attractiveness seizes our imagination in ways that it shouldn't. There's hardly a breath before we look on social media and somewhere someone does not agree with you about something you barely care about, right? And the little god of competency flies before you can wrap it. And suddenly you anxiously try to shove those little gods into your pockets, under your feet, under your hat. It'd be overwhelming to see what the heart produces on a daily basis. So many little gods to serve. The lawgiver says, one God. If you are overworked, over-anxious, over-serving, right, over-hoping in gods that can't, that can't deliver you, can't save you, it is an incredible amount of grace to hear God say, one God. One God you shall follow. One God you shall serve. He is the holy God. Because he's the one God, the conveyor belt, I don't have to fear it anymore. I don't have to serve every God that comes down the belt. I don't need to capture them, love them, hold them. Every worship service is an opportunity to say, there's no other God but the one God. He loves me, and him only will I serve. Exodus 20, verse five, which we'll get to next week, says you shall not bow down to them, meaning other gods, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I am a jealous God. It's very unique among world religions to have a God who desires people like us, who desires his creation, who desires his inferiors. In the Bible, we have this picture of jealousy. It is a longing, a desire, a huge, intense want to have these people, to be united with this creation. The God of the Christian God is the God who wants, who pursues, who orders all of creation, who orders all of redemption for the sake of reunion with his broken creation, okay? He orders everything that happens from beginning to end so that he can pull the Lucy and Ethels into relationship with the one God to serve. It's incredible that this is what he does. And the, the Bible word is jealousy, which we just mess up, right? We're jealous for us, for our sake. Our jealousy doesn't happen because we want what's best for that person. Jealousy occurs in us, that desire to have somebody because we want to possess them. Most often is a self-centered notion. I want them for me. And yet God says, I want them for their own good. I pursue them. We can't add anything to God. And yet he pursues us anyway. He longs for us. He searches for us. The God of the Ten Commandments is personal. These other gods are pen pals. You have no real connection to them except that they can drive you into the ground if you serve them. The God of the Ten Commandments says, he calls out through the prophets. 
He calls out through kings, through, through the law as it's given, through patriarchs, through people. Throughout the Old Testament, God is calling out for us to be united to him again. He is in his jealousy saying, I am the only God. And I walk through heaven and hell, life and death, the world over, to make you mine. This is what happens when we trace this back to the lawgiver. Flannery O'Connor says that in many ways we are not Christ believers, but are Christ haunted, right? That we know the story, and because we kind of know the story, it kind of just glides over us of who Jesus is. We're kind of haunted by the story of the gospel. But we're not just Christ haunted, we're also Christ hunted. The fire, the consuming fire is a jealous fire. Jealous for our affections, sure, but also jealous for our well-being. This is what we find out when we trace the law back to the lawgiver. When you look at the law of God through Christ, this is why you can delight in it. I, the Lord, am a jealous God. I desire you. You know, human law, human law doesn't work that way. The speed limit doesn't exist because the city and the state, the city of Hilliard, truly longs that you would be a person who does not speed, okay? It, it, the tax law doesn't exist because the federal government desires that you would be a person who at heart is very generous. That exists to ensure compliance and order. It's not personal. It doesn't truly have anything to do with who you are at heart. This law of God is different. Okay? We examine each commandment. We're going to have to remember Jesus' statement we talked about last week, which is Jesus says that I came kind of to fill up the law, right? So we're going to have to ask this. What does it mean? How does, how does Jesus fill up the law? How does Jesus fill up this first law? Well, here's how. He comes in the flesh as the embodiment of God's jealousy, right? Jesus shows up as an embodiment of God's desire. You can't, you can't miss it. When Jesus comes into the world in the flesh, you can't have any other explanation except, man, that God really loves them. That is crazy. He really wants to redeem them. That's insane. You know, you see two people, and you're like, boy, they are really not suited for each other. And then they get engaged, nobody in this room. And then you're like, wow, man, he really loves her. That is crazy, all right? The law is that engagement that God gives to his people. And he says, I love you this much to say, I am the only God for you. You must follow me for life. How do we fill it up? God shows up in the flesh, his own jealousy in flesh and blood. He says, I will make you fishers of men. Come and be healed. Leper, lose your spots. Blind man, lose your scales. Withered man, be unwithered. Lonely woman, lose your loneliness. The jealousy says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the God of the first commandment. Those are all invitations. Do you hear that? Have no other gods. Come and let me give you rest. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. God pursues us all the way to the cross and beyond. The first commandment is a letter of love from God who has spanned pole to pole for you. The Christian church believes it so deeply that we drink to it every week. We drink to that truth. Somebody talking about communion said this. Jealousy is zeal to protect one's possessions. To say that God is jealous means not only that he indignantly refuses to share his bride, but that he protects and cares for her with a love that is breathtaking for its passionate intensity. 
When he spreads a table for his bride, he's not only subjecting her to a test of faithfulness, you come to me, but he's displaying fierce love to her. As we come in humble faith, the supper is our assurance that the Lord is a jealous husband who will allow nothing to seize us from him. It assures us that nothing, life or death, principalities or powers, things present or things to come will ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It's amazing. This is what happens when you trace the law back to the lawgiver. Every week we show up and in this place, the jealous God embraces his people. The worship service is a rescue. It's where God shows up and he says, look, I'm gonna take you out like an ark, right? I'm gonna protect you. I'm gonna care for you. The Lord's Supper, it says that God is for unholy ones. Every week we need to be reminded of that. That's why we have this. It's for you, for unholy ones, for hungry ones. The Lord is for you. So what happens in the worship service, it's this dangerous place. You dwell there in your pew, right? And when you're there, you hear in the call to worship that the one God is, he's in your midst and you're in his temple and he loves you so. And when you hear the confession and the pardon that the holy God has consumed your sin on the altar through Christ, he has burned it away through Jesus. You're playing with matches, man. You're in the temple of the Lord and you're hearing, you open your ears a little bit, you hear the Christ in the words of the institution of the Lord's Supper. You open your eyes a little bit to see that you're connected to other people, other sinners too, who also need Jesus. You listen, you hear that you're not alone in this world, but you've been pursued by God from beginning to end. When you see this, when you hear this, when you experience this on a weekly basis, you catch fire too. You are made holy too. You are a loved, loved person. Annie Dillard describes the church this way as we get close to ending here. I love, she talks about her experience in churches often. And this is one. Uh, she says, why do we people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a packaged tour of the absolute? On the whole, I do not find Christians outside the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the uh, foggiest idea what sort of power we are invoking? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. This is a dangerous thing that we do, to be exposed to a God who so deeply loves us that he may change our lives and pull us into deep relationship with him where everything else is consumed. But that's what we're called to. What is the greatest commandment? This is the greatest commandment. Follow God. This is the one that houses all the other commandments. This is incredible. Don't miss that Jesus is the giver of this law. This first commandment says, wake up, see it, feel it, know it. Your God is a holy God who loves you deeply. His holiness hears you, it heals you, and it holds you. Let me pray for us.